Hey guys, it's the Weather Channel Podcast. I'm Ari Sarsalari, a meteorologist here at the Weather Channel. And one of my favorite things about my job uh, nowadays is that you know, I get to hang out with some of the people that I've idolized for so long, like people who have read their blogs for a really long time, like these legends in the meteorology community. And I've got one of them here with me today, Bob Henson. Bob, how are you doing, first of all? Oh, very good, Ari, and you're too kind of it. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, today, we're going to be doing a lot of podcasts with Bob uh, here in the future, but... Um, you know, one thing that's always been a huge interest for me is severe weather. I consider myself kind of a severe weather specialist. I'm really fascinated by tornadoes. Not like I'm not fascinated by hurricanes and things like that, but, you know, I'm, I'm really into, like, tornadoes, radar, hail, damaging wind, that kind of stuff. So today we're going to talk about F5 tornadoes specifically, F5 tornadoes, EF5 tornadoes, maybe some of the differences between the scales, uh, some of the history of some of these tornadoes, what they can do, and a lot of stuff like that. First of all, talk about F5 versus EF5. Let's talk about just the differences between the EF scale, which is the one that we use now. That is the enhanced Fujita scale uh, as compared to the original Fujita scale. When did the Fujita scale start to be used, and when did we realize that it had to be changed, and how did it change? Well, those are good questions, and they all go back to a man uh, named Theodore or Ted Fujita, who uh, came over from Japan after World War II, uh, became a very eminent meteorologist at the University of Chicago, and became increasingly interested in tornadoes and how to measure the destruction that they do. So he, along with Alan Pearson, who is head of what we now know as the Storm Prediction Center, uh, they collaborated together on what was called the Fujita Pearson Damage Scale, and that's what we call the F scale. That was introduced in the early 70s, and it was since uh, elaborated on and, and uh, repackaged as the enhanced Vegeta scale in 2007. So uh, the ratings were called F ratings from the 1970s till about 2007 or so, and then they are now called EF ratings. But they aren't quite the same, and there's some interesting differences. So what are the differences between F5 and EF5 tornadoes? What's interesting is that they both relate to the same amount of damage, more or less. Uh, the, the EF scale has a lot more criteria. There are what are called 28 damage indicators that they look at. And when folks go out and survey the, the, the area where a tornado hit, uh, they'll look at you know what the tornado did to all manner of structures, things like uh, automobile showrooms, motels, uh, mobile homes, high rises, low rises, uh, telephone poles and the like. And so this, this set of indicators is a lot more elaborate than it used to be. But in both cases, you're, they were just trying to figure out what kind of damage did the tornado do. And with an F5 or EF5, we're talking about maximal damage in most cases. For example, okay. for a house, you're talking about scraping the house off its foundation, right? Yeah. And these are well-built houses you're talking about too, right? Absolutely right. A, a less than well-built house may, may be destroyed by winds less than EF5. So that's an important criterion. In fact, some tornadoes we thought were EF5s got, got disqualified because of that. I so think what, about, what about numbers, though, between F5 and EF5? So as I understand it, and I can't remember the exact number for F5, but it was something like, what, 260 miles an hour or something like that in order to be an F5. And then for an EF5, now we're saying that basically we have done a lot of research and found that in order to produce that kind of catastrophic damage that we used to think it took 260 miles an hour to create, it actually only takes 200 miles an hour of, Dane, of uh, wind. Isn't that pretty close at least? That is right on the money. Yep, exactly. The, the, the damage for each of the EF levels is pretty much the same, but the numbers have come down. For example, uh, an EF3 
uh, well, let's just go with EF5. So an EF5 or F5 rather was winds of 261 to 318 miles an hour. And interestingly, there actually was a category beyond that that Ted Vegeta called uh, inconceivable. And that, that would have been an F6, but there never were any F6s that reported. So, so really, F5 is the end of the line as that goes. And so, again, that was 261 to 318 miles an hour. And engineering studies later showed that, well, it really doesn't have to be that strong a wind to produce the kind of damage we see. So now it's 200 miles an hour or more is considered EF5. So this is kind of interesting to me because, you know, once again, another one of these things in our field where there's always something new to learn, you know what I mean? And you just talked about the idea that, okay, we've pretty much done the research. We found that 200-mile-an-hour wind can pretty much just about wipe everything clean that it goes through. But, you know, Dr. Fujita was saying, you know, there's another level of damage that could even, you know, be higher than that, inconceivable. So why didn't we just, you know, add another level? You know, or why has that research not been done? Or does that research need to be done, do you think? Well, it was more like he was speculating on, on possible kinds of damages that could happen. Okay. For example, the F5 and EF5 levels both top out with high rises at, at substantial damage to the high rise. You know, windows knocked out, maybe some structural compromises. But generally, the building, you know, a high rise does not have to be knocked down to qualify as an EF5 or an F5. But you could, you know, I think he was speculating that what if a tornado did knock down a, a well-built high rise? And maybe at that point, we'd have to call that uh, an extra EF5 or an EF, F5 or, you know, level six. So it's really almost like a placeholder to say, well, we can't say with absolute certainty we, that we will never have winds over 318 miles an hour. So okay. part of why he had that F6 in there was because he had a top end for the EF5. And we've sort of gotten rid of that now by the fact that the EF5 is open-ended. It's really everything over 200. So we've essentially engineered away the possibility of an EF6. Okay, so let's talk about the kind of damage that an EF5 tornado can do, all right? And we've seen lots of examples of it. You as a meteorologist... Um, you know, you know what it's like after these events happen. A big tornado will roll through a town, and you're seeing all these pictures. Nowadays, it's just immediately on Twitter. These these pictures are popping up, and you as a meteorologist, even though you're not a weather service meteorologist that's there on site looking at the damage, which they have to do in order to uh, rate a tornado, your your tendency, and I don't, I can't speak for you, but at least for me, I look at it and I, you know, I'll say, okay, we got some good debarking on those trees. You know, that's probably, I'm gonna guess at least EF3. Maybe they could find some EF4 in there. You know, like what is the thing when you're looking at these pictures that you're like, oh wow, that could actually be EF5. What are things that stick out to you like a sore thumb? I think for me, the one of the first things is if there are homes there, are the homes completely gone? And and as we were pointing out earlier. That can happen even with less than an EF5. But if they're simply gone with hardly even a trace left, and even perhaps with parts of the foundation gone, that's, you know, to me, that's that's a pretty strong fingerprint of an EF5. Um, you know, ground scouring that's really prominent, you know, pavement pulling is what it's sometimes called, where the tornado literally rips all, out part of the roadway and can even scour out some of the ground to depths of a foot or two, believe it or not. Um, so, you know, those are the kinds of things that uh, the, the winds of an EF5 will just chew the landscape up in, in those particular ways. Yeah, and I'll add to that a little bit. I mean, for me, when I'm looking at these pictures after a big tornado went through, and if I see something that I think it looks like it could be EF5, like one thing for me would be 
uh, when you see trees, just like all of the trees that were in the neighborhood, not just debarked, but like ground down to little nubs. You know what I mean? Like all these trees, like they were big, tall trees and they've lost almost all their top branches. There's no bark whatsoever left on the tree. And you just see these like, you know, light brown colored things, which is basically you know, just the middle of the tree and there's like no branches left basically. That's one thing that I'm always like, okay, that that that's like maybe I could maybe see that being um an EF five, definitely EF four. Um another thing that will stick out to me like a sore thumb is a car that has clearly been thrown a lot. Like it's completely mangled and completely unrecognizable. You know, you see cars that are crushed sometimes that they look like they are, um, you know, they've they've been in a in a car impound place or something. I don't know what the word yeah. is for it. You know, like a like a place where they demolish cars and put them through those things. You've seen cars like that, but then there's another level after that where it you could clearly tell it's just been twisted and mangled, and there's been so much stuff thrown at it, and it's completely unrecognizable. All the paints off it and stuff like that. Like when I see that, I'm also kind of like, oh man, maybe maybe EF5 in in some of those spots. What do you think? Yeah, where it looks like you could barely tell that it ever was a car. Um, exactly. Actually, you know, interestingly, the car vehicles are not part of the, these 28 damage indicators. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but um, they just, I think because they need to look at fixed structures or uh, there's not just structures, you know, trees are in there. There's hardwood trees and softwood trees, as we were just alluding to, but uh, all the rest are pretty much structures. So I guess there's so much variability with vehicles and how they're built and uh, you know, how they, how low they sit on the ground and, and so forth. But uh, uh, certainly when you see that kind of vehicle destruction, it's an indirect indication that this was, you know, toward the top end of a tornado. Yeah, you talked about some of the ground scouring too, and we're going to talk about this with uh, a couple of specific examples. A few that come to mind are Gerald, Texas in 1997 that had some pretty inconceivable ground scouring just a picture you know and that's that's one thing that i still think we could do bob i know i'm going off on a tangent here but like you know first off there's a reason why there's not much video that exists from inside an ef5 because in general there's not much if anything that does survive when an ef5 tornado goes through um i think that's a really fascinating thing that um, I know there are some people working on it with things like probes and things like that, but boy, how interesting would that be to be able to get a camera to somehow visually show what is going on in the middle of an of a tornado that is producing EF5 damage? You know, like what does it look like physically when the wind is actually pulling concrete out of the ground and ripping a huge hole in the road, you know? I, you know, I can't imagine. And I, I, there is kind of a primal desire to, to wonder what that looks like. And I think that drives a lot of tornado chasing, simply to see from a safe distance what that sort of thing looks like. And um, certainly most chasers don't want to see devastation and, and certainly not injury. Um, but I think we're all curious what it looks like in, in, a, in a tornado like that. And I, I would imagine in the, in the heart of an EF5, especially in those little mini vortices spinning around the, the, the main body of the tornado that you wouldn't see much at all because there's got to be so much grit and dust and uh, ground up particulates and things that uh, you just would have a hard time seeing anything if you could see anything. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about that. I know there's one video that exists that sticks out in my mind. Um, I think it was I think it was rated in EF3, but they said that. So it was the, it was these guys, you know, the uh, the guys that were doing the IMAX films. I think they you know they had one of these tanks that you can drop down. I think it was Brandon Ivy, if I'm not mistaken. If you look that one up on on YouTube, Brandon Ivy, Nebraska uh, intercept 
I can't remember what year it was, but they they get a hardcore intercept of a big old tornado. I think it was in Nebraska. And they put the claws down on the side of their, you know, uh, storm chasing vehicle. And that tornado goes directly over them. And they've got windows all over this thing. But the thing that you notice is that before the tornado comes in, yeah, it looks overcast, kind of like it looks when a storm is coming in. And then while the tornado goes over, which this was a big tornado, it lasted, you know, the core of it lasted a good solid minute and a half at least. I mean, it was just pure hell in there for like a minute and a half. But you couldn't see anything because there was so much stuff flying around. It was just pitch black in the middle of the day. You know, I think that's something that would be like a huge challenge as far as, actually trying to see what goes on in the middle of one of these things because there's so much stuff flying around that you literally can't see anything. Yeah, even remote sensing would be challenged. I mean, you know, um, mobile radars can now see things like debris balls and such. So you can certainly tell there's debris going around in there, but uh, to get much more of a, a visual, visceral image of that would be really tough, I would think. But, you know, I was going to say, getting back to the Gerald instance, um, you just mentioned that this uh, example of a tornado uh, being captured from the inside was lasted about a minute. And I think Gerald was on the order of a minute or two. And that raises a really important point that the damage is not just how strong the winds are, but how long they last at a given point. And that can relate to not only how large a tornado is, but how fast it's moving or how slowly it's moving. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was a really um, kind of an extremely unique example of a tornado that lasted so long. And, you know, some of the some of the tornado researchers that I've seen kind of write about Gerald, and they've seen a lot of these, you know, high-end tornadoes like EF5s and F5s, a lot of them say, oh, man, Gerald might have been the worst. Like, that might have been some of the worst damage I've ever seen. And like you said, it was because it was so slow-moving and it just sat over these same spots for a long time. We'll talk yeah. about that tornado in just a little bit more detail in just a second. Um, back to just kind of general EF5 tornadoes. Like, how common are EF5s? How often do they happen? Not very often, and we can be grateful for that, you know. <laughs> Uh, so to kind of pull back to the biggest picture, in the United States is tornado capital of the world. I mean, we get far more than any other co single country. And, and that is on the order of, say, 1,000 to 1,200 uh, that are reported every year. Most of those are on the weak side, F0s and F1s. Um, as you drill as you uh, drill down, you might say, to, to higher F, EF ratings, uh, there are fewer of them. So when you get to EF4s, maybe that's about 2% of all the tornadoes a year in the U.S. on average. So that's about a couple dozen, right? Maybe 20. And then when you get to EF5s, you're down to maybe on average about one a year. So one, only about one out of every thousand tornadoes is an EF5. Um, but but yeah, then but you it, have years where you have a lot of them in one year and some years where you have none. And we haven't had one since, what, 2013 now? Yep, it's been five years. And um, you know now that we're getting toward the latter part of summer, uh, it becomes less and less likely we'll get one this year, although not impossible. There's certainly been EF5s in August. And, um, but yeah, we will have gone five years. By the same token, um, back in 2011, we had five EF5s. So you might say we, we used f up five years quotient in that point. It's kind of like a hundred year flood. You know, that's, that's kind of a misnomer because it doesn't mean you will get a flood like clockwork every hundred years. It's just an average. So uh, you could think of an EF5 as a once a year tornado for the whole country, but uh, they're going to be clustered much more than that implies. So where where do these EF5s most often happen? When people think about tornadoes and where tornadoes happen, I bet the vast majority of people, if you ask them, would say Oklahoma, right? That's like yep. tornado capital of the world, Oklahoma. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that there are also a ton of tornadoes and really bad ones very often in this place called Dixie Alley, which is kind of 
like uh, out around the Tennessee River. We're talking like Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, places like that. And they've got two severe weather seasons. They've got another one in the winter. There have been like Christmas tornadoes and things like that down there. But So I think the difference between those two places is that, first of all, out in the plains, yes, they, have, they do have a ton of tornadoes. It's Tornado Alley, very similar amount of tornadoes that they get in Dixie Alley. And I think very often they will get a similar amount of really strong ones too. But the tornadoes tend to like be a little bit different, right? So you get out in the plains, a place like Oklahoma, people storm chase out there a lot because you can see to the horizon out there. It's it's plains, you know, there's not that many trees, there's not that many hills. Um, you know, it's good storm chasing country if you want to see a tornado. But in a place like North Alabama, where I worked for a while, I used to be a, a meteorologist at Way TV in Huntsville, covered a lot of tornadoes there. I don't know, unless you're an experienced storm chaser, you know, that's not good storm chasing country because you got a lot of hills and trees and you can't see stuff. Very often the tornadoes are rain wrapped down there, a little closer to the Gulf of Mexico. There's a lot of moisture around and those tornadoes are big. They can be like a big old cloud on the ground. You don't see it till you're in it, you know? So, Bob, I'll I'll bring you back to this question. Do we know where more of them happen? Are there more of the high-end tornadoes in the plains or Dixie Alley or do you think it's pretty similar? I would say roughly similar, you know, not having done a formal comparison, you know, the, the places that tend to get a whole lot of tornadoes, I would think by and large would also tend to get, uh, you know, a proportional amount of the, the strongest ones too. Um, so certainly the, the, the tornado, classic tornado alley, the, the uh, Southern Central Plains, uh, Dixie Alley, and of course the Dixie Alley ones are problematic for the reasons you mentioned. You, you can't see them. Uh, they may occur at night more often because uh, they can occur in the wintertime more often. And um, you've got trees, you've got uh, denser populations, so there's more potential for havoc on that end. And um, I, I, would, should all, I would also point toward the Midwest. You know, um, I, I, there's, a, there's been an alley identified there, and I can't remember the name. I want to say Hoosier Alley. Uh, I'm not sure if that's it, but in kind of the, you know, Illinois, Indiana, uh, even as far north as Michigan has had EF5s, I believe. Yeah, Wisconsin's um, had a couple, I think, Wisconsin. two at least, right? Yeah. Something so like that. Are, yeah, Go where ahead. it gets tougher, I would say east of the Appalachians is where it's really tough to get a tornado as strong as EF5. Um, certainly there are tornadoes all the way up to New England, and uh, the Wooster tornado of 1953 was, I believe, an EF4 Um there's been some controversy. I think Tom Grizzoulis, who's kind of Mr. Tornado, independent researcher, rated it as, as an F5, but I believe the official is F4. So there are some kind of on that boundary, but I'd say most often it's between the Appalachians and uh, the Rockies in the U.S. Yeah, a lot of extending, meteorological reasons for that, right? Extending <laughs> up into Canada as well. That's right. Yeah, there has been an EF5 tornado in Canada that we're going to talk about in a minute as well. It's in Eli, Manitoba, 2007, the year that I graduated college, and that was a very unique, very unique tornado uh, for many reasons. Um, okay, uh, I also want to hit on um, one point here, one question that I have for you. Like, have we ever seen an an F5 or an EF5 that has hit a downtown area? And just maybe we could talk a little bit in general about a lot of people have misconceptions and you know ideas about how tornadoes behave in downtown areas they think why have we never seen a downtown completely destroyed by a tornado do they just not hit those areas can you get ef5s in areas like that yep there you know back in the day growing up in oklahoma there were various stories that there there was a native american legend that a tornado would never hit norman and i think so much of that is is you know mangled history and and you know cultural misunderstandings but also 
simply the idea that if a town hasn't been hit in say a hundred years of European settlement, then it'll never be hit. And it's it's a quick step from that to some sort of, of um, supernatural explanation for that. Uh, there's a city named Topeka in Kansas that was um, had a similar concept that there was a legend that Topeka will never be hit by a tornado because of this. And in fact, they had a, a massive EF5 in 1966 that went right through town. Now, th that same kind of uh, perception issue can come up with downtowns because downtown is such a small part of an urban area. So it's going to be that much harder for a tornado to just hit a downtown by random, right? If you're throwing darts at something, the chances you'll hit that bullseye are quite small. But it has happened, you know, I think the most dramatic example was 1953, uh, May 11th of 53, Waco, Texas, a tornado, F5 went right through downtown and was really catastrophic, killed more than 100 people. Uh, brought down several multi-story buildings. Um, now, in, interestingly, there was another EF or F5 in Texas in 1970 that hit a high rise that was outside of downtown, but uh, nevertheless a 20-story high rise and actually measurably twisted that building. You could you could look at the side of the building and see the little twist in it, and that building's still there. So if you're ever in Lubbock, uh, go check it out. That's pretty cool. I actually had no idea about that. Let me also ask you. Um... You know, do you know about any research that's being done or has been done on how tornadoes in general behave in downtown areas? I know I've got some buddies at UAH, University of Alabama, Huntsville, uh, some grad students that had been doing a lot of research on uh, how tornadoes behave in, uh, when they go over hills and mountains. You know, like I think they found that uh, tornadoes do tend to get a little bit stronger as they go down a hill as opposed to when they go up the hill. Um, uh, has there been any research on how they behave, like with friction and just really, you know, mesoscale or microscale stuff like that, I should say, like downtown? You know, I, don't, I don't know that there's been a lot of formal research. Um, I imagine folks have speculated with, with strong engineering backgrounds on that. I'm, I'm thinking about what you were just pointing out, which is really interesting research, and thinking why would a tornado strengthen going downhill? And I'm thinking it could be because of the intensification of the low pressure which is not unlike the jet stream going over the Rockies and creating low pressure in the plains, which is a Just really on a well smaller scale, right? Yeah, so maybe that's it. But anyway, I don't know of any formal studies on tornadoes hitting downtowns, probably because there have been so few. But, you know, I certainly could imagine a, a huge downtown having some effect on the tornado, but I would expect the tornado would have a lot more of an effect on the downtown. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess that does make a lot of sense when you think about it. Um, okay, so let's talk about a couple individual EF5s and F5 tornadoes that we had. Um, I'm going to focus mostly on EF5. So what was the year again, Bob, that this went into effect? Was it 2007 um, or 2005? Yeah, it was 2007, and in fact, I believe that the first formal EF5 was Greensburg. Yes, Greensburg, Kansas. Okay, so let's talk about that one. That was a super devastating tornado. It happened at night, if I'm not mistaken, right? Definitely, I think, in the dusk range, maybe after dark. You know, it was that's, dark, I think. I think it was dark. Maybe it's that time of day in that part of, this, of the state and country when there might be a little twilight, but it was essentially dark. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously very devastating tornado. That was May 4th, 2007. Uh, obviously, they've since rebuilt, um, and they did a pretty good job of it, uh, I have to say as well. But, you know, you talk about these nighttime tornadoes when you don't have any light. And it, it's so tough to find video of the Greensburg tornado. I've kind of looked around. The only thing you can find is there's this video out there. Of, I, I think it was maybe some storm chasers, but they have the camera kind of pointed out toward the horizon and just 
they slow it down a couple of times where there's like a few lightning strikes that you can see the actual tornado, but that's about it. And this is one of those tornadoes where it just hits. By the time it hits and you're in it, it's too late. Maybe you didn't know it was coming, and, um, you know, then it's gone and you've got all this damage. But, I, you know, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was a pretty well-warned tornado. I've seen a lot of the coverage of it from some of the local meteorologists out there. Uh, any other thoughts on Greensburg? Uh, that was a nasty cell uh, that, that spawned that tornado, as you may remember. A big, ugly uh, supercell storm. and had a so pinhole, didn't it, in the reflectivity? It may have, yeah. It, it certainly it was a monster. And, that, of course, when storms are like that, it's, it's easier to, to warn people. And I would say if you're a lot more likely to be warned if an EF5 is coming than maybe if it's an EF1. So I think you could take, take some solace in that. Um, but yeah, that was a nasty one. And, and I should point out that, as you say, Greensburg has done an amazing job of rebuilding and they've actually consciously crafted themselves as a green town. Um, their energy is hundred percent from renewables. Uh, they have their own wind farm just outside of town and they have the largest concentration. I was just reading, uh, the largest concentration in the world of buildings rated, uh, as uh, lead, I believe lead platinum. Uh, so exceptionally high, you know, high efficiency buildings. So I think it's pretty cool. How it's like the ultimate of taking a lemon and making lemonade out of it. You know? Yeah, absolutely, man. Those guys did an amazing job with that rebuild. Um, okay, so the second one, if I'm not mistaken, I think was uh, Eli, Manitoba, up in Canada. Yeah, you can get EF five tornadoes up in Canada. They've got a severe weather season, just like down in the plains and you know uh, parts of the southeast. We have a severe weather season in the spring. Um, you know, in the summer, when the jet stream moves up toward the north, if you get enough moisture up there and you get the right, you know, clash of air masses and the right dynamics in the atmosphere, you can get some pretty nasty storms that produce uh, tornadoes. Now, most often, the storms will produce damaging wind and hail. You don't mm. get tornadoes as often in the summer, but they do happen. Yeah, you know, I, I, should, I yeah. yeah I, oh, I was just going to say, thinking about the tornado awareness up there, I think people realize there can be tornadoes, but because they're seldom really devastating, I think it's not quite the amped up culture you have, say, in Oklahoma. And I'm reminded of a lawnmower man. I'm sure you remember him. Yes, that's right. Where was he again? Uh, somewhere in Canada. I forget. I think I want to say Alberta, but he was the picture of, of, is taken by his wife. He's blithely mowing his lawn, dum de dum de dum, and literally see this tornado in the background. Moving That's over. the most Canadian thing ever. I love it. Um, so, yeah, Eli Manitoba, what a tornado. This one. This one has some of the most uh, amazing tornado video I've ever seen from it. It was a very unique tornado. So usually the vast majority of the time I would say, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, Bob, but when we're talking about, you know, uh, an EF5 tornado, it's most often one of these situations where it's like, you know, a good solid half mile wide at least, you know, cloud on the ground type of situation where you don't really see a very, you don't see that condensation funnel. It's not like the pretty picture of a tornado out in the plains uh, where it looks like what you would think a tornado looks like. This one, however, it was what we call a high LCL tornado, which is basically means the, the cloud deck itself is really high, whereas most often in these situations with an EF5, you've got a pretty low cloud deck, and there's just kind of like a shallow lowering from the, from the cloud deck that can be really wide, and that ends up being the tornado. This one was a very skinny, tall drill bit tornado, if you want to call it that. Uh, totally devastating. And I just sent you some video of it, Bob, where you can... <laughs> this is the one I always show to my friends when they ask, you know, what... what? Can you show me a video that, like, shows a tornado destroying things? There, There's a part of it where they kind of zoom into it. They're pretty far away from the tornado. 
but they zoom into it. You watch a well-anchored uh, structure get completely obliterated in like half a second, and uh, then it, and then the tornado itself throws a pickup truck like really high in the air, just like a complete rag doll. What did you think of that video, Bob? That's crazy, uh, isn't it? It's it's jaw dropping. I mean, even to see the just before that that vehicle tossing the a roof, a large roof, simply just flies off as if it were nothing, like a piece of paper. And, uh, you know, then followed by that vehicle, uh, which, you know, it's something to see. I mean, I've seen a couple of videos uh, going all the way back, I'd say, to the 90s. I've occasionally seen a video with a vehicle uh, in the air, but this was an especially dramatic example of it. Yeah, exactly. I've seen a couple where there's like an EF2 or an EF3. Maybe there's like a... um you know, like a parking lot surveillance camera or something, and you can see a few cars getting, like, lifted off the wheels and, you know, kind of tossed a little bit. But this was like, it looked like a uh, like a baseball pitcher just taking a baseball and just throwing it up into the air as high as he can, and that's what the pickup truck was. It just looked like this tiny piece of debris uh, with this tornado. But, man, just what a skinny tornado. Just think about, you think about the violence that was going on at the center of that thing. Uh, just a really interesting example there. All right, let's yeah. move on to – oh, go ahead, Bob. You got any yeah, more thoughts on that gonna, one? Yeah, but I was just going to point out that um, there's two things going on when you have this contrast between the very low cloud base uh, kind of squat tornado and the really high cloud base thin one. Um, I believe that the lower cloud-based tornadoes are sometimes some of the strongest ones and largest ones um, for other, I mean, in other words, several factors feed into this. So um, it kind of accentuates that, that contrast between the two. Um, so uh, certainly a, a, a tall, you know, a high cloud-based will make a skinny tornado look even skinnier is what I'm trying to say. And and that's kind of the interesting thing too, because when you look at the video, it looks like this really tall, skinny tornado. And in you know, uh, comparatively speaking to most EF5s, it is. But then, you know, you kind of look at like what the size of the pickup truck was when it got thrown. Um, I'm sure if you were standing right next to the tornado and there's no video from right next to it, thankfully, because they were smart and they stayed far away from it just to get a view. But yeah, probably still pretty darn big, you know, who knows, maybe an eighth of a mile wide or something. And that was just such an interesting one because you could actually see the condensation funnel on it, Bob, you know, like Uh usually with these EF5s, they by the time it gets up to that strength, it has so much debris flying around it that you can't see that that pretty cloud-looking condensation funnel at the middle, you know? Yeah, and I think this is a good time to, to stress something, and that's uh, not to judge how strong a tornado is by its appearance because it can be skinny, it can be you know, wide, um, uh, you know, it can be light-colored, dark-colored, whatever it is, you've you simply got to take take the warning on its own merits. And if, there, if you're in a tornado warning, then behave as if, as if this tornado could, could do you do you trouble. That's a really good point about not being able to see it. And, you know, even in a tornado that has some debris flying around it, um, one thing to always keep in mind is, you know, the, the large-scale circulation of the tornado, the whole area that it could create damage is, like, really far from the center. You know, it's, it's of course, the strongest part of it is at the center. But, you know, you look at a situation like El Reno in, um, what was that, 2013, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people were chasing this thing, and you could see, you could visibly see, like, the condensation funnel and a lot of the debris flying around, but they were still getting into big trouble getting caught in the outer circulation of it where you couldn't see as much stuff, and all of a sudden they were in the tornado and they didn't even realize it, you know? Yeah, that was the widest tornado on record so far, and just, I would say, one of the most complex tornadoes I can imagine because there were there was a lot going on simply with, you know, damaging winds on the out 
periphery of the tornado and outside it, and then spin-ups within the 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 uh, wall of the tornado itself, almost like tornadoes in a, around the edge of a you know eye wall of a hurricane. And it was those one of those spin-ups that apparently led to the deaths of Tim Samaras and his son Paul and Carl Young, the the, the um, storm chasers who were killed in that tornado. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what what is it like at the middle of an EF five. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people have this idea that. If it's an EF5 tornado, it's just producing EF5 tor- damage across the whole path. Well, that's actually not the case. You know, uh, if, if, if there's a tornado and we say it's EF5, most often what that means is that there was a very small area where the weather service went out and maybe it was like a couple houses on a block where they were like, oh, wow, this is EF5 damage. So it's usually a really small area within the tornado path where they're actually finding this EF5 damage and that, you know, ends up, kind of defining the tornado as an EF5. But so that brings up the question, Bob, like what's going on at the middle of these things? Is it these little suction vortices that you can sometimes get around the middle that is producing the worst damage? Has there been research done on that? What do you think? I would imagine so. I would imagine that depending, of course, on the size of the tornado, uh, you could have a large EF5 where the suction vortices do most, most the very worst damage. And if the tornado translates over a point such that those vortices don't hit you, then uh, your particular home or structure may have a little less damage and conceivably less than the one right next door. So this may be one of the reasons why you can get such varied damage, uh, even in an EF5, where, uh, you know, the, the worst damage could, could go from homes being completely obliterated to maybe partially damaged within the, the span of several homes. All right. Uh, the next tornado, the next EF5 one to talk about was Parkersburg, Iowa. This was May 25th of 2008. Um, yeah, obviously another extremely devastating tornado, just completely demolished a, a good part of town. Uh, some amazing videos. This was just when we're starting to get into that era where a lot of stuff was getting videotaped. Um, gosh, mm-hmm. 2008, I don't, you know, there were some cell phone cameras and stuff. It wasn't quite smartphones, I don't think, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But there are some amazing videos of that tornado. There's one uh, of a bank, I believe. It's like a surveillance camera or something like that. And uh, the the thing that stuck out to me like a sore thumb with that video is it's video of this bank, and it's, once again, like I was talking about that situation where those guys got in the tornado and you couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. It was overcast, you know, like a thunderstorm was coming. You could tell it was a little dark. And all of a sudden, in just, just like two seconds, it goes from that amount of lighting to complete pitch black as the tornado comes in from the left side of the screen, I think, if I'm not mistaken. It just completely takes over. You see the bank. You can actually see the bank get completely ripped off its foundation before the dark part of the tornado even hits. So once again, the outer circulation, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes the debris will get sucked into the middle, but actually the wind is going on on the outside. So I don't know. You've got that video. Then there's another one of these people that uh, they were at a graduation party and um, somebody forgot their cell phone was on. It just went in their pocket. So it's all audio and you can hear just the horror as everybody gets inside a um, uh, a cooler at a restaurant or something like that. And just the sound Bob, of these EF5s when they go through, even when you're inside like a decent uh, shelter, all the stuff flying around that's just hitting uh, the structure wow. around you. It's crazy. Wow. No, I haven't heard that, but I can I can certainly imagine. Man. Yeah, I think there's another one, um, another video similar to that with Joplin. Um, this is this is th- another thing that people don't understand about tornadoes. You know, the, the, 
you get this idea from movies that what what kills people in a tornado? Oh, you get sucked up into the tornado and it throws you. Yeah, sure, sometimes that happens, but most often it's having just stuff thrown at you. You know, it's like blunt force trauma, just, you know, pieces of wood, pieces of cars, pieces of trees, whatever it is that hit people. And when you listen to some of these videos of people that go through tornadoes, what it actually sounds like when a real tornado hits, it's not like... It's not like the wind sound, like the whoosh, whoosh, you know, like everybody thinks from the movies. It's just, it's just stuff being thrown at your house, you know? Yeah, just a cacophony of objects smashing into other objects. So, yeah, it is, you know, I think that that kind of trumps the wind sound at some point when you're right in the middle of an EF5. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so... I would uh, encourage people to go check out some of those videos. They're just really interesting. I mean, you know, those people have been through a lot. Um, you know, obviously we don't take pleasure in anybody else's, you know, rough stuff that they have to go through. But, I mean, amazing learning tools, at least for me as a meteorologist. I'm a broadcast meteorologist. When I watch a video like that, I feel like it gets me a little bit closer to, okay, that's what it's actually like. So this is what people might have to actually go through so I can adjust my broadcasting accordingly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have videos like that, then it's it's best if we can learn something from them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. There, there, there are a lot of storm chasers that take flack because they try to get too close to tornadoes. It, you know, there'll be a lot of meteorologists up on their high horse on Twitter, like, "Oh, these guys are stupid. They're getting too close." Okay, sometimes I maybe agree, but at the same time, I'm just telling you, as a broadcaster, every time I get a, one of those videos of somebody that got too close to a tornado and they took that risk knowingly, I respect them for that because that gives me an amazing teaching tool. You know what I mean? Yeah, as long as we keep in mind that that sometimes folks have calc- done those calculation and lost, it, like the Samaras yep. and, and Carl Young. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And those guys are doing amazing research. Um, okay, let's move on to 2011. Okay, 2011 was was the big year. This was a huge oh. year of tornadoes, and most most of it was from the uh, April 27th, 2011 uh, tornado outbreak. Um, let's just talk about a couple. There were four EF5s that day, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, yep, I believe, four, well, let's see. There were I, four that day, right? There were five that year because of the, um, jo- um no, um, Joplin. I think it was Joplin. Um, Joplin is, yeah, Joplin is, right, so there were six that year, in fact. Yeah, yeah, let me let me just double check that. I'm going to look that up yeah. real quick because uh, I think uh, I think Joplin was 2011. It's not 2012. Yeah, it was. Right? It was just less than a month later. So there were four. There were um, let's see, one, two, three, four EF5s in the April 27th super outbreak. That's right. Uh, and May 22nd. Tuscal- yeah. And then there was a fifth one, the Tuscaloosa, which was borderline EF5, but officially EF4. Yeah, that's right. They had high-end EF4 on that one. Okay, so some of the EF5s from April 27th, and this was like a Mississippi, Alabama. Um, outbreak is where the worst of it was. There was one tornado in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Um, that was one of the EF5s, and uh, that's one of the ones that has some of the most impressive ground scouring pictures I've ever seen. When I'm talking about ground scouring, we're talking about you look out in the path of the tornado in a field, and you can literally see where the tornado has just dug out these humongous trenches. It almost looks like World War One trenches, maybe not quite yeah, that deep, yeah. but... Yeah, like that's something. Just that that it would be not just ground into the into the ground, but but in a linear fashion. You know, it's, oh, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. There are actually pictures if you look up on Google, like NWS Jackson uh, from Jackson, Mississippi, the Weather Service guys there, who I'm buddies with a lot of them, and they're really good guys. Um, they 
they have some pictures on there from the Philadelphia uh, damage survey where they are standing inside some of this ground scouring. And, I mean, they're maybe just a little bit taller than how deep it got, but a a lot of them, they're pretty darn close to, like, being in there all the way, you know? I would like to understand more about the physics of that, how the the wind actually gets into the ground and then, you know, because we, as we know, winds, um, as they, there's friction at the ground level. So winds tend to be quite a bit weaker, say, uh, where you're standing than 20 or 30 feet above you. So how is it that the winds still have enough force, even at the ground level to do that? It, it, that blows my mind. Do you think that it could be all the stuff that's flying around down at the it, ground? It could be it. And I imagine once you get a, a trench or something like that started, or once you start to dig into the ground, then the wind can take off from that point. So maybe that's it. You have to have some object to get it started or some point of leverage, you know, maybe a, a, you know, a, you know, a piece of ground sticking up like a small hill or something. Yeah, right. absolutely. That's a good point. That would be a good thing to do some research on anyway. Yeah, if anybody's listening. Are you listening? <laughs> there we go. You know, what's so funny is when I was in college, you know, I went to University of Wisconsin and uh, not like we don't have any broadcasters that come out of there, but it's not that many. I wasn't planning on broadcasting. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just went to school for meteorology because I knew I liked weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they they were pushing a lot of people to do research. And I just remember at the time thinking, oh, research, that, that sounds gross. You know, I remember like, you know, I'd be going out to the bars with my buddies on a Friday or Saturday night, and then I'd pass by the AOS building, and I'd look up in the top, and I'd see the light on in the research researcher's oh. room. I'm like, that doesn't look like fun. <laughs> yeah, but they're but, having so much fun, too. It's just a different kind of fun. you know. Exactly, and that's the thing. After doing this operationally for over a decade, now I actually have drive to do research. You know, I've, I, I, I see things that I'm curious about, and I'm like, boy, I would love to do a research project on that, you know? I guess it was just ten years too late, huh? <laughs> uh, well, there's always you can always go back, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a, yeah, you're it's right. not, yeah, going back is it you have to yeah it takes a lot of energy and, and uh, drive and ambition, but it, it is doable. Yeah, a little money too would help, yeah, right? Staff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, another EF five tornado that we had on April twenty seventh, two thousand eleven, Smithville, Mississippi. Um, oh man, the one the one that always sticks out in my head about this one is uh, there was a water tower in town, and they found some paint from a pickup truck on that um, water tower. Like, they traced it back to a pickup truck that they knew had existed, but they never found the pickup truck. Something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Just crazy stories. That's detective work. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And, And, you know, they end up having to do a lot of this stuff in the damage surveys. And, you know, talking about damage surveys a little bit with EF5 tornadoes, uh, specifically with this April 27th outbreak, I'm good friends with a lot of the weather service guys at NWS Huntsville, and I was visiting the um, the office there one day, and uh, one of them, uh, I think it was Tim, I can't remember who it was, but he was a he was a really nice guy, and he was it just opened up to me a little bit about what the uh, experience was like going through some of those damage surveys. And Bob, those guys those guys have to go to therapy after some of these things. They see some horrific things. He was telling me you know, just some horrors, you know, finding bodies skewered on trees, um, you know, finding body parts, you know, and there, I, I think there was another story that came out of April 27th where there were a lot of reporters around, you know, out mm. of the damage and they, they were seeing these body bags and they were asking, uh, asking the authorities, they're saying, okay, so we can count that. That looks like 
this many people. We just want to know how many people passed away. And they're like, they're like, you can't count those bags because some of them it's just like body parts that we found. So I know this all sounds pretty graphic, but it's kind of just kind of the realness of the situation. I think it's important to understand. Um, and those guys, they deserve a lot of credit for doing those damage surveys. You know. Yeah, I would agree 100%, 1,000%. And I think the psychological toll of that is under-recognized, I think even within uh, our meteorological community. I think uh, so. We, I think we need to make sure that folks that do these surveys have you know, the, the support they need to kind of cope with the aftermath of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that was Smithville, another incredibly devastating tornado. Um, I do have a friend who lived through that tornado. His name is Johnny Parker. Um, I believe he's also a meteorologist, or he's at the very least going to school for it, but he's a, a little bit younger than I am, and he's a great follow on Twitter. I can't remember his exact Twitter handle, but just look him up, Johnny Parker. He's a cool dude. Um, okay, Hackleberg and Phil Campbell. That was another one, April 27, 2011. One tornado uh, went through both of those towns, and I believe there was EF5 damage in both of those towns, and it went like you know, right into populated parts of the cities. And you got to understand, northwest Alabama, there's a lot of space in between the populated areas. So this was like a really unlucky path that it took. I think it's Highway 43, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this tornado, uh, it hit Phil Campbell first, and then it went through Hackleburg, or vice versa. I can't remember which one's farther west and which one's farther east. But Hackleburg was first, but I'm not. Okay, okay. So Hackleburg first, then Phil Campbell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think Hackleburg's down in Marion County, and Phil Campbell is in... Oh, gosh, it's going to drive me to Franklin, oh, Franklin County. Got it, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so I lived in North Alabama for a while, and one of the things I used to do uh, because I started working there after the outbreak was I, I like to just drive around the cities and just kind of get to learn the area a little bit. One thing I specifically remember was many years after this tornado hit, Highway 43 between Hackleburg and Phil Campbell, there were still just tons of trees that were visibly down in a spiral fashion. Like this tornado went right along the highway. Huh. And you, we're talking like four or five years later, you know, all these dead brown trees that are just down in a counterclockwise uh, spiral pattern. You could see it on Google Maps for a really wow. long time too. Very fascinating wow. stuff. So you, could you actually see the swirling pattern as you were driving by? Yes, it was unbelievable. And that's, wow. a, that's something that I'd never seen with my eyes before because usually – you know, when you pass by tornado damage, um, yeah, you can kind of tell, you know, the trees don't look quite as, uh, or they look a little fresher, a little smaller, you know, you can tell they'd had some branches. You, you can just kind of tell tornado damage when you see it, but this was just like, holy moly, it's like a different breed of tornado, these things. Wow, that's the kind of thing that I think pulled Ted Fujita into studying tornadoes. I think just this fascination with the ability to, to basically look at the damage and just, uh, you know, deduce from that exactly what was happening. And, and that's a classic example of that. And then there was another tornado that day um, on the other side of North Alabama, Northeast Alabama. I think this was DeKalb County, Rainsville and Sylvania, a couple of towns that got hit pretty hard by that one. And that's another one that I've driven through the damage so many times. The unique thing about that one um, is that it is just such a long path of damage. Like the width of the tornado is so wide is what I'm saying. Because I know, I know that the tornado went um, perpendicularly across the road that uh, I was driving on up there, right? But the thing is, you start to see tornado damage, and then you find yourself driving, you're like half a mile down, you're like, wow, it still just looks just as bad, and then had mm -hmm. another half mile down. These things, it's tough to, it's tough to uh, physically think about what does a mile-wide tornado where you have that wide of a intense damage path, like what does it look like, you know? Yeah, I was in Oklahoma. I uh, grew up in Oklahoma City, and I was uh, back for a family visit about a week after the May 3rd, 1999 F5. 
And so I saw quite a bit of damage that was still uh, fairly recent. And uh, the scope of that was was mind boggling in that same way. You you see a block of damage and then there's another block and then another block. And um, mm. just the, the swath and the, the, the relentlessness of the swath for a, a really bad, you know, prolonged tornado like that is it's more than just seeing a couple of blocks destroyed. That's for sure. Yeah, there was one report from that tornado that stuck out to me of a I think it was a. Uh, well-anchored 800-pound safe that was picked up and, you know, found like a mile away or something, something wow. crazy like that. Yeah. And you thought it was safe. <laughs> right, exactly. Just oh, unbelievable uh, what these things can do. Go yeah. ahead. Oh, no, I was just uh, thinking about that. But, uh, yeah, go ahead. That's fine. No, I was going to say, um, let's talk about Joplin and more, and then we can wrap up here. But, uh, you know, when you talk about Joplin, and this was, again, I think May twenty second, 2011, that was – what was that? That was the deadliest tornado in the modern era, right? Yeah, and this keep in mind this was less than a month after what happened in the super outbreak that we the, the tornadoes we've just been discussing. So we just had one of the worst tornado outbreaks in history, and then three weeks later, it's a Sunday afternoon, and I believe it was only a slight risk of severe weather at first. So a very localized setup, and then all of a sudden that night you hear that there was this devastating tornado, and that, that was yep. another weird storm, wasn't it, Bob? Yeah, very weird, very localized. Um, and, uh, there was sort of a, a, not a fake out warning, but there was a tornado warning, uh, not for the immediate tornado that hit Joplin, but for a preceding one. And I, I'm afraid some folks may have thought, oh, that, that never happened. So then it's all over. And then of course the, the real one arrived not too long after that, uh, it was a complicated warning setup. I know that and complicated meteorological setup, but yeah, the deadliest tornado, um, since 1947. Um, so it was such a horrible year. And, and that particular tornado uh, just did a whole array of, of, of horrible damage. Um, yeah, it really did. That's some of the worst damage that I've seen um, because, I mean, that one went right through the heart of really residential areas. And I think I had even driven through there. What year did I go chasing? Uh, I think it was like 2013, 2014. And I'll tell you what, they've done a great job of rebuilding, but, boy, you could still see – um, a lot of devastation there, and that was like two to three years after. Yeah, um, but that's one that went through the heart of a city. I'm glad you, you mentioned that because yeah. it didn't really go through downtown, but it went through a, a big kind of prosperous central part of the city. So that's That tornado is an example of uh, something you can find some really fascinating video of, of people who videotaped themselves like in the basement <clears throat> as the tornado went through. Excuse me. <clears throat> and... Um, after that, so you hear the tornado hit, and it's just crazy to hear what it sounds like. And then they come up into basically nothing. You know, like their house is completely gone. Like it's just wiped clean. Um, you know, some people got oh. very lucky. They were down in their basement. And they were fine. But the idea that this was such a heavily populated residential area with trees everywhere, houses everywhere. They weren't too far apart. And you... All of a sudden, the tornado goes through, and you come out of your basement. First of all, your house isn't there, and you mm -hmm. can see all the way to the horizon. All the trees are gone. They're just ground down to little nubs, and um, that was just, I think, just iconic imagery from that where you can see all the way to the horizon where there used to be just such densely populated area, you know? Yeah, very iconic is, is the word. I, I did a brochure about the tornadoes of 2011, uh, a scholarly brochure, and uh, we used a, a photo from Joplin on the cover, and, and it it perfectly evoked what you're talking about, where you just see, you know, for, as far as the eye can see in one direction, there's just devastation. And 
uh, two, I was thinking when you're in that basement, you don't know this is an EF5. You just know there's a tornado. Right. So, you know, and maybe there'll be some damage. And then when you see what actually happened, holy cow. Oh, the idea that you could be thinking in your head like, oh, boy, it sounds like some stuff got pretty messed up out there. Let's go see how many if there's a few trees down and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, wow, there are no trees. Oh, wow, there are no houses. Yeah. I mean, I might have to put shingles on the roof. Oh, well. Oh, geez. <laughs> just... There's no roof. There's no house. Oh, my. It's just unbelievable. So that one, I think, obviously, one of the most devastating tornadoes of all time. Um, it's got to be in the in the talk. And then. Uh, not terribly long after that. Well, I guess there was a two-year hiatus without any EF5s, and then uh, more Oklahoma came around again. Now, this one, for me, Bob, I remember I was working in Huntsville at the time, and it was one of those days where we had quiet weather in Huntsville, and I was kind of getting the evening show ready. And, uh, you know, we're just sitting there watching the Weather Channel because they had the live feed of, uh, you know how it is in Oklahoma City when you have a tornado, especially nowadays. All the stations, they get their helicopters up, they got their storm chasers out. This thing may have been the most... Well, I, I think it clearly was the most um, uh, well-covered visually EF5 tornado of all time, right? I, I would agree with that. I mean, I wasn't there to see it, but I, I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing, the thing that I remember about this tornado was that once again, another one that went through a superbly populated area. And if there's anybody that knows how to deal with tornadoes, it's people that live in Oklahoma. I mean, you grew up there. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, and especially more, given their history. This was 14 years after they had a different F5 tornado. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, the thing that I always remember with that one is we were just sitting there watching it, and we're like, oh, my God, this is going to kill hundreds of people. Because you could just tell that it was it was incredibly violent. We didn't know at the time that it was EF5, but even if it's like an EF3 you know, something that violent going through an area that populated. But I think it, I mean, obviously, you know, it killed some people. So it was very devastating between 20 and 30 people, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But I cannot believe that that tornado didn't kill more people. And I'm so happy it didn't. Yes, I, I, I feel the same way. I think, you know, Oklahomans are by now extremely tornado savvy. And, you know, a lot of Oklahomans, unfortunately, don't have shelter at home. They uh, Most don't have basements, even though uh, there certainly are basements. It could be basements. Most homes don't have them. And um, there are some folks who have safe rooms that they built, you know, specially constructed rooms that cost a few thousand dollars that are reinforced that are designed to withstand an EF5 or certainly storm, you know, classic uh, Frady holes, they used to call them storm shelters, you know, in the ground. But uh, many folks don't have any of those options. There are some areas like schools and such that have shelters. So that makes it even more amazing that the death toll was as low as it was. I think. And that was pretty much the last one. So hopefully we don't have another one for a while. But, you know, I hate to say this and sound, you know, like doom and gloom, but we're due. We're due for yeah, one. There's... One thing that's been interesting, you know, Harold Brooks at the National Spirit Storms Laboratory has done a lot of interesting research lately. And he and other folks have been finding uh, an increase in the kind of clustering of, of bad tornado years. And uh, the, 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 the strongest tornadoes seem to be occurring a little more in concentration with each other, even more than usual, uh, punctuated with these long periods of fewer tornadoes, uh, which certainly this year qualifies in, uh, to the max on that. It's one of the most quiet years in many years. So uh, it's, you know, we could take some comfort in that, that it's, we're in a, in a relatively quiet year, but uh, that can turn on a dime. You know, any particular day could have a bad tornado. So. Yeah, it could. I mean, you think about it, um, 2011, obviously a really bad year, and I don't think there were any EF fives in 2012. But 2012 was a big tornado year too, if I'm not mistaken, right? 
Yeah, if I, I can't speak to specifics. I get fuzzy a little bit sometimes on yeah, I don't have the standout ones. But yeah, I mean, even a quiet year will still have six, seven, eight hundred tornadoes. So yeah. uh, we just live in, in a part of the world that gets a lot of them. So, uh, you know, all the more reason to be tornado savvy. Let me ask you one last question before we go. Uh, 2011 super outbreak versus the um, 1974 super outbreak. How did how do those compare in your mind? Uh, could you say one was worse than the other? Um, these are the things we call generational events because they generally will only happen once every 30 to 40 years. But not to say that it couldn't happen again, you know, in a, a week from now. Who the heck knows? But uh, how would you compare those? I would, you know, I see those almost as siblings. There, there are so many similarities. Um, they both affected wide areas. Um, certainly the 1974 one uh, uh, was extended farther into the Midwest, but it also affected the Deep South as well, whereas 2011 was much more Deep South centric. But in terms of the number of tornadoes, the number of strong ones, the, uh, both, both events killed uh, more than 300 people. Um, both events were well warned. Um, you know, even back in 1974, when, uh, you know, long range tornado outlooks, you know, multi-day ones were really in their infancy and not even really there. In fact, I think the most they were doing is, is one day, maybe two days, but uh, certainly that day they were aware that there could be a, a large tornado outbreak. So I think, you know, they're, they're more similar than they are different. And the fact that they're separated by that, what is it? 27 years, 37 years. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. It is, isn't um, it? It really says something that uh, we can be super grateful that that uh, at least in you know memory we haven't had any more than those two. You know, at least in yeah. some folks' memory. <laughs> Not Bob, <yours. laughs> this I got to tell you, man, this has been absolutely fantastic. I love, uh, I, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do, just sitting around chatting weather with other weather geeks. And I hope you don't mind me oh, calling you that. <laughs> I feel the same way, and I, I enjoyed it thoroughly as well. And I was catching up. Yeah, man, we'll do uh, we'll do some more of these in the very near future. All right, we're about to get going with uh, doing some more a more frequent podcasts here over the next couple of weeks, and I think it's going to become a mainstay. So uh, enjoy the rest of your day in Colorado. You got about two more hours of your day than I do. I'm starting to get my my <laughs> afternoon tired a little bit. Get to go do my hour and a half commute in Atlanta traffic. I'm ready to do it. <laughs> All right, well, get yourself ready for it. That's great. Um, and uh, I, I hope folks who are listening will let us know what, what you think of the podcast. We're really eager to hear uh, folks' folks' thoughts, suggestions, uh, kudos, tomatoes, whatever you might have. We're, we're, yeah, we're, totally open to tomatoes. That's totally cool. We just want to make it better. So whatever you want, let us know. If we stink, tell us why, and so we can yeah. fix it, all right? Hopefully the uh, tomatoes are cherry tomatoes, right? Yeah, exactly, right? That's the nice thing about just being on the audio. All right, Bob, have a good rest of the day. We'll talk to you later, buddy, all right? Thank you, Ari. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.